Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's word. And once more, let's go to his throne of grace and ask for help in this we do. Father in heaven, once again, in the same place, at the same time, with our Bibles open, we ask for you to teach us. We know you, the great teacher. Make us good students, and Lord, in order to understand and then to obey, and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Well, let's start with a question to get ourselves thinking, and this question could, uh, I suppose, uh, dredge up some, some bad memories, perhaps, as this would probably line up with uh, some of the most uh, discouraging or, or, or disrupting situations in life along the lines of losing a loved one or the dissolution of a relationship like a marriage. But here we go. How many of you in here, don't raise your hands, have ever been fired? I've been fired once myself, uh, but not really. Uh, this is a story that goes behind it. It was my first job ever. I didn't even have a license yet. My mother would drop me off at a used car lot. I would work for three of them, and uh, two of them were brothers, and one was a brother-in-law. Um, but this is where I would start, and it was just on Saturdays. And one Saturday after lunch break, I found out that I was fired, and everybody else that day. Uh, the manager had a meltdown of sorts, and best course of action, so they thought, was just start from scratch and inform the boss that they had let the staff, all three of us in the garage, go. Bad thing was, I didn't have a phone or a car. I'm stuck there. I'm not making any money. One of them left. The other guy who was stuck along with me didn't have a ride because he was on work release. And... Uh, <laughs> So we pulled up a couple of five-gallon tire cleaner buckets and had a pack of square nabs and a Coke. Tried to figure out what to do for the rest of the day, and neither one of us wanted to go back into the office. About a half hour later, boss man showed up and said, you're not fired. Nobody's fired. Maybe the manager's fired, but let's not talk about that. And I'm going to let you go home, and I'll call your mom. I'm going to pay you too, and let's just hope that this never happens again. Now, I would be laid off from a seasonal job at Hills Department Store. I don't know if anybody knows Hills Department Store, if y'all had those down here. I was hired to work in the electronics department somewhere in October, got to wear a tie, selling new invention called a compact disc. 
I remember uh, Mariah Carey's Christmas album. We just couldn't keep it in stock. But then come January, when, when people return stuff, and it was good that you couldn't return CDs once you opened them, um, they said, we can let you go like everybody else, or you can clean the bathrooms. And I knew I couldn't work for a landscaping company until the spring. That was in the works. So I add that to my resume. I know how to clean public toilets, not just the ones at home. And then later, I almost got fired from the first church I served. In fact, it was so bad, I kept my, my letter of resignation in, in my pocket here for about a month or two. In case an impromptu business meeting came about, I could cast the only vote that mattered and leave. But... That was going to be a, a win-lose. The win would be there was a special book on the desk of the president at Southeastern Seminary where I was enrolled. And it was an elite club of, of young men who had been fired from their church for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons, not for being an idiot, but for taking a stand doctrinally that was worth standing for if it got you fired. I didn't get fired. I made it a few more months and was hired by the church that I left when I came to meet you. But that's my history as far as employment and firing. But that was enough for me to learn that that is absolutely grueling. I mean, even as a teenager, you wonder, did I tear something up? Did I scratch someone's car? Am I just ugly to look at? I mean, what happened? Then when you know it's everybody else, it's a little better. And with the church, I was married. We had our oldest. I had bills to pay. It's it's not good going to bed or waking up wondering if you're going to have your job when you get there or your key's going to work, you know, when you try to use it. It's not fun to be fired. It's not fun, I hear. I've never had to fire anyone. Um, I have heard tell that there's a person or two on the planet that enjoy it. But I don't know that I've ever met them, and they're probably lying. But you would agree that it's, it's no small deal. Now, technically, I don't know that you have a case for Timothy, or not, excuse me, John Mark being fired, but it's obvious that he's at least been voted off the island, as it were, by Paul. He doesn't have what we need for this trip. We didn't even have the pleasure of firing him um, On purpose, he abandoned us on the first one. He's not going. Barnabas says he's better. I think he's 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 fit. He's learned. But the disagreement's so sharp they split company. So I think the idea of employment helps with this situation to a point. And you you can see if this fits well. I thought I'd carry it a step further just just to think through the idea that there seems to be an, an unwritten rule. Uh, having to do with those in Christian ministry and that they should never be fired or let go because the church itself is built on grace, not merit, which is true because that's the gospel. It's grace. We don't work for our salvation. We couldn't if we tried. It's not merit-based. But the idea that people within a church should never be fired or let go is a fallacy because of this one point. Try to hold all this together. All this will make sense in a moment. The church's mission 
is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's providing employment for Christians is, is way down the list of priority. Now, the reason why a church would employ people is because in their efforts to meet the mission of the church, you're going to need some people that will exclusively work, not somewhere else, so it'll be necessary to provide them a living. But that is not the mission of the church. It might be the mission of an employment agency, but the church of Jesus Christ is not an employment agency. It's, it's life and death. Compounding this notion is the idea in our culture that, that we've, we've lost a word out of our dictionaries, and that would be vocation. I don't know when the last time you heard it or used it. It's often used synonymously with, say, occupation or even career, but it's not a synonym. Vocation, by its definition, is described as a strong feeling of suitability for a particular career or occupation. And to put it another way, uh, to do something you're not gifted to do would, would be to work a job aside from your vocation. Your vocation would be what you think is your suitability toward a job. It's a very Protestant idea. It goes right in there with the Judeo-Christian work ethic that you hear so much about from time to time. The word comes from Latin. It means to call and is based on the idea that it is the Lord God who equips each of us with gifts and talents, the ability to hone skills, and then calls us to serve him in whatever capacity pleases him, even regardless of the way we earn our living. So whether a doctor, lawyer, accountant, teacher, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, <laughs> um, thought I might just change it and ruin the rhyme and see, never mind. Regardless of whatever our employment situation we are to see our giftedness as our God-given vocation and offer our labor to his glory in whatever means he directs us to do. Even so, let's get back to this idea of firing. Most of those who lose their jobs, and, and it's possible to lose your job other than being fired. I wasn't fired by hills. It's just January ran out, and they didn't have any more work in the electronic department but they did with the janitorial, so I switched. But most of the time, people lose their jobs, believe that they've lost their job unjustly. That's human nature, isn't it? I mean, I remember standing in line when January was over, and you, you would have thought that the world had been promised to some of these people with seasonal employment and then just jerked out from under them crush their inner child, whatever else. But when it's our livelihood, it's, it's close, right? So of course we do, whether it's true or not. Now statistically, if you believe statistics, most people lose a job because of economic stress. After all, a company is for profit, and to survive economic ups and downs, payroll has to uh, go in and out like the tide at times, which again to the person who gets let go, feels unfair, and it's few people that understand that they're not an exception to all that. But the main reason people are fired, not let go, 
but good old fired is usually because of a mix match between their skill set and the tasks required by the position. Does that make sense? If you've got to fire somebody, usually the job isn't getting done. Now, there's cases where they're stealing from you or abusing the workplace environment or whatever else, and for the sake of everybody else, they have to go. But as far as the bottom line or their usefulness, the generic word for this type of thing sounds really harsh, but here it is, incompetence. But because of our ability as humans to take something that sounds negative applied to ourselves and just apply it to the whole rather than to the part, we usually hate that word incompetent. But wouldn't you say that it probably makes sense that if someone's not competent in this narrow field that the job requires, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're incompetent across the board. Give you another example. I would surely, most surely, be considered incompetent as an accountant because I can barely count. I needed a a tutor to pass the only math class that my religion degree required as a liberal arts degree from Liberty University. In fact, I had to take two. One of them was remedial. I came out of high school so bad that I didn't get into college where everybody else got in. I had to take a remedial class and then get to the one that was required. Imagine paying for a class in college that you don't even get credit for because it's not on your list because you're incompetent, (laughs) right? So I paid my hard-earned money to another student to help me get a D (laughs) in the only class that I needed. But D is a passing grade. So once it's out of the way, I'm free to do what I feel like I might actually have some competency to do. But it's bad when you feel like you walk out of the class and you're no good at something. But I I, I do admit that was my favorite D out of the whole career because it was a passing D. To say that a person is incompetent in one field doesn't mean they're incompetent in every field. John Mark, the one in this passage we're about to study, would sail for Cyprus with Barnabas on the second missionary journey and then would leave that journey before it was over. Some would say strike two, Paul's vindicated, he wasn't worth anything, maybe. Eventually... John Mark, having spent time with Peter on this short trip and more, would sit down and write a book. If you thumb through your New Testament and you get past Matthew, you found it. The Gospel According to Mark. Now that was his vocation. That's what he was good at. Does it matter that he's not suitable on the battlefield of the mission efforts? under General Paul the Apostle? No. But it sounds like it took him a while or it was necessary that he be around certain people to gather the right information to be able to write down what he wrote down and what would be the first gospel written out of the four. So it's obvious he wasn't fit for the battlefield. Missionary wasn't his thing. But putting Peter's experience to paper certainly was, and the world's been different ever since. So, back to the text. 
What we've got here in this last little paragraph is Luke presenting Paul is taking initiative for another journey. If you notice when we read through it, it's not called the second missionary journey at this point. In fact, it's just a revisiting of those converted on the first missionary journey. And at the end of the story, we're going to find out that instead of two people, as Paul was thinking, revisiting, it's going to be two people on a new missionary journey and two people in a different direction on the same missionary journey. God's going to take what would have been one pair and turn it into two pairs and use something that might borderline, if not actually sin, in order to do it. He's going to turn good what perhaps others meant as evil. If we keep going and study through this and take what we've learned in the book of Acts up to this point, these are longtime partners in ministry. Paul and Barnabas, after their missionary journey, after Jerusalem Council, after some additional time teaching in Antioch, these plans to revisit churches come to a halt when John Mark is the disagreement. Take him or leave him. Now, I don't know if anybody reads this and doesn't have an opinion as to who was wrong. You can think either on either side of it. Paul, probably a matter of principle rather than personal concerns. It's just business. It's, it's not personal. We've got to get this done, and we need somebody with some guts in order to do it. Barnabas probably wanted a do-over for his... And looking at the Greek word in the context, it's really hard. It either means his nephew or his cousin, but they're related by blood. So there's that. And then we could ask, what do we make of it? You know, Paul and his writing and his teaching is inscripturated truth. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Does that go all the way to his firing John Mark? Is that the will of God? Well, certainly not. Is God using and, 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 and overseeing with his sovereignty every inch of the way? Of course. But we're talking about two responsible human beings that are divided over a third. What we can say with certainty is that while these two can't work it out, both continue their work and both are faithful in ministry, just in different areas. And even though the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament is unity among the church, we, we, how many paragraphs are concluded and they remained or continued even after what looked like might could split the church didn't. Unity is the overarching theme. And even though disputes like this are a rarity, we do have Paul withstanding Peter to the face. We talked about that last week. And knowing that the recipients of grace, as we are, we're expected to give grace. But here's what this passage is not, because it's just not there. It doesn't require the giving of second chances to everyone in every situation. There is, in this passage, an obvious case of someone how do we say this? A square peg being beaten into a round hole. We find out later a perfectly square hole to put this young man, and it's beautiful. But as human beings, we're, we're going to stumble our way upward toward the kingdom. We make mistakes. We don't always find our niche to start with. I mean, history's full of this, isn't it? Uh war generals, Douglas MacArthur. He kind of floundered through the whole thing until he was actually put in charge. Same with Winston Churchill. Nobody liked that guy, but boy, didn't he settle it while people griped about it. 
but he got the job done. They found his niche. We know that Barnabas was an encourager by nature. Perhaps this made him short-sighted in this instance. Maybe he wasn't ready yet. Paul's right to say that it wasn't time. Paul was a single-minded man of principle. Mark had failed them once. Doubtless, he felt that no man putting his hand to the plow, having looked back, was fit for the job. He could even quote scripture at him and say as much, right? Well, let's take what we've got. We'll look at it in little pieces as we move through. It's not that big of a passage. But here are characteristics of Christian conflict we can learn from this passage. Number one, conflict between Christians is often surprising, but probably shouldn't be. It's surprising because we usually think that these kind of men are better than that, or we put them on some unrealistic pedestal, or we just think that it's the Bible and there's no room for mistakes there, right? No, there's no room for the adult mistakes in the children's church with a flannel graph. That's a problem. If you stop learning in Sunday school and don't read your Bibles as an adult, you may think that it's all just lovely. There are whole books that never make the flannel graph. Judges is not on the flannel graph. Uh, What happened after uh, Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt? That's never on a flannel graph. It's full of mistakes. It's full of outright sin and selfishness and, and, and people putting themselves first. We all have that inner lawyer that's always lobbying for our own best interests. So conflict between Christians who are saved but still sinful is not surprising, it sh- it, but it is because we think better. So we look at this story and say, not these guys. Barnabas is a son of encouragement, the, the nicest man in the New Testament. Paul's the most educated man in the room. They've been together forever. It was Barnabas who vouched for Paul when everybody knew him as Saul and, and knew him as the one ravaging the church. Uh, they had the idea of the foxhole, their lives threatened, in and out of prisons. That's these guys. And now they're going to split company over something that appears small. This isn't like a band breaking up for, politi- for you know, profit margins a year later when they decide to get back together over a new album or whatever. It's not that. This is a problem. Paul and Barnabas would prove also that it seems like mileage is in a defense against it. Isn't that the weirdest thing? If you've been around for a while, you probably know of people who knew each other for a very long time before it all blew up. You've been through so much. How does this happen? It happens. And then there's an encouraging part of it. You know, if we didn't read our Bibles and find out that Paul withstood Peter to the face and Paul and Barnabas had an irreconcilable difference, would, 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 wouldn't you rather have a Bible with mistakes in it? Doesn't that make you feel better? I'd kind of be afraid if it was all perfect. In Lystra, they called them gods. Well, they weren't even angels. These are men. And we've got an episode here where they really look like it, don't it? Over my dead body is probably about Paul's last word. And Barnabas, being the encourager, just probably walks off shaking his head. That's point number one. Conflict between Christians is often surprising, but shouldn't be. Number two, conflict between Christians is often about small things. 
Small to who? Not to people in the middle of fighting about it, right? But to people that walk by and go, (laughs) my wife's not in here. She's in the nursery. Her mother used to say that her and her brother would fight over a booger. (laughs) That's about as worthless of a thing that I can think of. Usually want to get rid of those, but if they thought the other wanted it, they'd fight over it. I know you work at places, you have families, you know that people will fight over the stupidest thing. Now, this isn't necessarily a stupid thing, but to the rest of us, we would look at it and say, good grief. Can I see this better than the two of you that are closer than I am? This is usually the way it goes. The ESV uses the word sharp disagreement. It has a Greek connotation for a word that we have in English that nobody uses anymore, but it basically describes an explosion of emotion. Luke isn't describing why they were upset, but only as to what they were upset about, and that was the problem of John Mark, who had left them on the last trip. So I think Luke being... The honest man to bring it up in the first place. If, if Luke is going to record this falling out, I would think if it was over something important like doctrine, he would have said so. Because he covers how Paul, with, or Paul records in Galatians how he withstood Peter to the face. He even says that Barnabas was almost sucked into it. And then we have uh, these other places where it, it describes who's in contention with who, but Luke doesn't give us that here. So it could go back to Jerusalem with the fallout over the circumcision issue because Peter and Barnabas were kind of pulled away from Paul into that, and perhaps John Mark is too. But likely this has to do purely with track record. Anybody want to raise their hand to prove that they have a perfect track record? Nobody has a perfect track record. But it looks like, you know, it's not three strikes you're out. It's one strike you're out. But then again, how many times can you desert an army on the battlefield and get a second chance? Civil War, you got the noose for that. So it's probably not about doctrine. Might be about what happened in Jerusalem. Obviously, it has to do with track record. So the goal for us is not to figure out whose fault it was, Paul or Barnabas. Luke didn't tell us, so it's fruitless to speculate. Good arguments on both sides, and we're going to have to ultimately leave it where Paul left it. They disagreed, but we don't know exactly how. I was thinking of a way to explain how that good people can look at a single thing and look at it differently based on personality earlier this week while I was riding down the road and listening to some other pastors handle this passage. I do that when I'm in the truck a lot of times. And while I'm thinking of an illustration, one of them just kind of unfolds right in front of my eyes. You live in this town, you drive on the roadways, don't you? You're familiar with the congestive nature of Fuquay's traffic. So you're sitting behind a stoplight maybe a dozen cars deep. There's probably two dozen behind you. And let's just say that someone is positioned in the, I guess it'd be the driveway of, say, a bank or a restaurant. And you know what they want to do. They're going to pull out into traffic. Some people 
we'll slow up, let the traffic move and do this and let someone through. Now, the person who's let through thinks this is great. I don't have to wait on the other two dozen cars. Problem is, the two dozen cars behind you might not agree with your unilateral decision (laughs) to let someone in. When they've been waiting their turn, same as you're waiting your turn. Especially when it's pretty obvious that if anyone else gets let in, I'm going to catch that orange light that turns red right in front of my bumper. And there are men that watch for that. Though I see about three or four, I I tell Corey, look, they're going to blow those lights. It's Fuquay. And it's because of people who let others in. We could have a raising of hands and divide this congregation into personality trait by saying, which is right? Let them in or let them wait. Right? We could both probably say, who's right? General Paul or the son of encouragement, Barnabas. I'm not going to have us raise our hands. Because at different points in studying this, I think I can see it from both their views. And I can kind of see that in traffic. It usually has to do with whether or not I am busy or rushed. I'm way more charitable when I've got all day. But when I don't have all day, I don't need someone ahead of me who has all day. (laughs) Right? Because they're likely to be generous where I might have, if it had been my idea. So what do we do with this? We just leave it where Luke left it. Doctrinal agreement doesn't necessarily guarantee harmony. You may have a group that all believe the same things, but differences in personality, temperament, and chemistry mean that they will approach those things differently, the same things differently. I think I learned this best the first year away from home in a dorm room in Florida at Word of Life. I'd lived in my home all my life. I go off to school. There's four other people. One is from an hour down the road in Florida. Another is from California. Another's from Canada. And another's from Papua New Guinea. That's, that's, a, that's a whole uh, small, small world, you know, right in our dorm room. We came at things differently, though we sat under the same men and studied the same Bible in the same room, ate the same food, slept in the same room. But there were differences. So we should look at this with eyes open. Number three, conflict between Christians is often unavoidable. What? Yeah. I don't know of one single relationship, you be the judge from your experience, that is positively 100% conflict-free, that isn't in some way messed up as a result. You know, there's some people that are just so agreeable that they'll hide all that stuff they don't like in a fog to come out later, you know, in in royal fashion. If it's 100% conflict-free, it's probably temporary, right? The men in this passage, after their sharp disagreement, parted ways, so we look at it and say, well, guess it couldn't be worked out then. No, later it is. But maybe we should say conflict between Christians is often unavoidable until there can be time enough for us to see it from other angles, adjust, and learn some things ourselves. That's what happens down the road. Does this passage give us a bailout when we find ourselves in a tight spot? 
maybe a, a, a proof text to say, hey, let, let, let's, let's sit on this a while. Let, let's sleep on this. Let, let's talk it through later when we're not upset, so on and so on. But there is a time to concede a point for the sake of unity and getting on with the job when what you're arguing about is substandard to the job or the mission itself or what's best for the group. You know, back to the traffic. If you polled the audience, is this best for the group to let this guy in? Uh, One day may look different than another day. It depends on the group, doesn't it? So you join another group, it might be different than the group you were with before. Well, this group over here, we did it this way. Well, this group over here, we do it different. So sometimes it's unavoidable. There's some relationships that, that are so important, it has to be worked out. Because you stood in front of an altar with uh, God and everybody's your witness and you promised for life, we're, we're going to make this work. And the thing that bails out the marriage is not a tiebreaker between the two people involved, but the standard would be this, that you together agreed on would be your tiebreaker. We're going to do what this says. Now, does it say where you spend your Christmas? No. But it does tell you how to be loving and kind and all that stuff in Corinthians 13. Um, We talked about that before. When you get into a tight spot and it looks like it's just not going to Work Well, we got this stuff from the New Testament penned by some of these same guys. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If Possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is talking about your enemies. And I know, live long enough to understand that in some cases it's easier to be kind to an enemy than to the person that you love the most. That's our sin natures. That's where most of the pride resides. That's where we're most closed-minded. That's where the principle of the thing is just such an immovable object. But since our marriages are a picture of the permanence of our relationship to our Lord, fingered, printed, and wrinkled as they may be, we look at it as, a, as, as, as worth the hill dying to self over. You heard that thing, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on? Sometimes you need to die on the hill to yourself in order to be useful to someone else. Now, we can't be, be sinful. We can't throw away doctrine. Those are non-negotiables. But number four, conflict between Christians is always redeemable. Even though not all conflict will be redeemed this side of heaven. Sometimes someone dies before you get the chance to redeem it. That first church I was in, I knew of a pair of sisters. There were more sisters than these two. One was in their 90s, the other in their 80s. They had a 
Falling out, that was the way they talked about it in Halifax County, Virginia. And they would say falling a little different than I say falling. And they would say out a lot different than I would say out. Had an R in it. O-U-T had an R between the U and the T. Weird. Nobody's from Halifax County. I didn't think so. You'd be laughing right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But they had a falling out over the accusation that one had thrown away like a 60-year-old jacket that was falling apart but was a favorite. Now, of course, this allegation was denied, but they weren't going to talk to each other. Sit on opposite sides of the church. It's the craziest thing. I don't know if they ever got together. It might be too late. Have to be reconciled in glory. Sisters in Christ and sisters by blood. Not all conflict will be redeemed, but let this be your encouragement. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. This is Paul, the last thing that he wrote. He's in prison. Tradition tells us he'll be executed by Nero. And it's just a sad story. He's an older man. He's asked Timothy to bring him his coat and to bring him his parchments. And then it says this, Luke alone is with me. So other than the man who wrote the book we're reading now, he's alone. But he says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, I don't know about you. You've got probably a half dozen copies of this. During this, they didn't have a New Testament. They've got circulated letters that are going to eventually comprise the New Testament. And there would eventually be four Gospels, but at this point, it might be just the one. Now, Matthew and John spent those three years with Jesus. They saw all that stuff with their own eyes. Luke is getting it from other sources, and so would John Mark from Peter. But if there's one person who was like us in this story in that he was not there for any of the things that Jesus did, it would be Paul. Of what worth is the gospel according to Mark to General Paul the Apostle? If you're locked up, you're trying to write things together, put together some things for churches, that's the best you can do. John Mark is about as good as gold when it comes down to writing. Perhaps he's saying, bring him. I need my publisher. Got to get this stuff down. He has a way with words. The thing that, that Mark did was he was concise. He, he wrote tighter than any of the rest. The word straightway is in there at every turn. And straightway they did this. Straightway they did that. And straightway or immediately. It runs as fast as the Roman mind ran. And that is where Paul wanted to go. And that's who he's writing to. He needs his help. Colleague. The one that turned tail and ran back on the first missionary journey. So, if you learn anything today, what a resume. Authored one of the New Testament's four Gospels, but fired by the Apostle Paul. Who can say that? John Mark can say that. What's our resume? What's your resume? Are you open to allowing the gifts God has given you to make a way for your usefulness, even though it might not have a thing in the world to do with your career? Or your job. Most people have jobs. Not everyone has a career. 
Will you ask the Lord regularly if he has you where he wants you? Will you ask him to help you see to it that you are true to the vocation he's given you? To use your gifts for his glory, even if it means absorbing the misunderstanding of others along the way. Why would you spend chunks of time on something you don't even get paid for? If full-time Christian ministry is not your vocation or your calling. These are big questions. I think this text does a marvelous job of bringing them to the mind's eye. I think that's enough. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, again, you've been so good to us by not only having these words written down once upon a time, but preserving them for us to have our copies even today. Lord, we thank you for someone honest enough to include this story, but wise enough not to give us the details to have us retreat to our side of an issue and away from a line where negotiation may take place and helpfully. Lord, we ask you to use the experiences we know about the job and being let go or fired or what it is to be competent or gifted for a task, things that we might know as to suitability for this or that. But Lord, would you focus our minds on what you gave us as your child for use in your kingdom, for your glory. And Lord, would those gifts make a way for us to get in on what you're already doing. Lord, may we be filled. May we feel the wind on our back. May we receive the joy. And maybe later the reward, but Lord, may the glory all be yours. And Lord, for this, we thank you. In your precious and holy name, amen.